thanks for being here this morning. Um, one quick announcement for you before we get going. We will not meet next week. It is mission conference week at Cedar Springs, and so kind of everything else takes a hiatus that week. If you do go here, and even if you don't go here, I would love to invite you to come and be a part of everything that's happening with Missions Week. And so you can look on the website and kind of see the various times and things that are being offered. It's a fabulous week, but we will not meet here. And so the next time that we will be together is in two weeks, John 16, and that week will also be a fellowship week. So it'll be a good time. Uh, But this morning, we are digging into John 15. And if you attend Cedar Springs on Sunday mornings, then you know that for the past two weeks, the sermon series has lined up exactly with the Grace and Truth series, which is crazy, yes, um, coincidence, maybe not. I have to think that God is doing something in all of that. I'm not sure exactly what, but I do think he's doing something. And so I'm excited this morning to look at this passage, some of us for the second time in four days, um, but regardless, to allow God to take these truths deeper and deeper into our hearts. Um, And perhaps some of y'all were here this summer And you know that we studied the I am statements of Jesus this summer. What you probably don't know is that the reason that we studied the I am statements is actually because of my own personal journey through this passage that we're going to look at this morning and Jesus's claim to be the true vine. Um, God used it in a really significant way in my life over the course of like six months last year to really do a deep work in me. Uh, And so I really got curious about the other six and decided to bring summer study along for the journey. And it was fabulous. But the funny thing is that this past summer, the only I am statement that I didn't get to teach was this one. The one that, like, really was, like, deeply personal to me. And so it's really been sweet this week, the past couple weeks, uh, that God has brought it back around. And I do get the opportunity to just share with you some of what God has shared with me really over the past, like, year and a half. And so I'm excited to do that this morning. It feels really personal for me. And so my prayer is that it would meet you in a really personal way as well. So let's pray to that end, and then we will worship together. God, you know how much I love this passage. I thank you for the ways that you've used it in my life to convict me, to challenge me, and to change me deeply. I'm so grateful. And my prayer is just that you would do that for this room of women this morning, that you would use these truths to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, and most of all, to change us. We know that you can. We ask that you would. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Y'all go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 15. We're going to read together. Remember that we are, like, right in the middle of Jesus' farewell discourse, right? So, like, his goodbye speech to his closest friends. Um, He's continuing to prepare them for how they're going to carry on his mission after their death. And so this that we're going to read just now is what he says to them as they rise to leave the upper room. And they start to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will ultimately be arrested. So John chapter 15, Jesus speaking to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Okay, so walking along the road with Jesus, questions, confusion, anxieties, no doubt all those things like swirling in the disciples' minds uh, as Jesus has just told them that he's about to die, he's about to return to the Father. And it's into that place that Jesus offers up these words. He gives them this illustration of a grapevine. And he does it to really drive home some important truths that they needed to hear and that they needed to remember then if they were going to make it in the days and the weeks and the years to come. So he's preparing them for his departure. And honestly, like, did y'all just like marvel at this section of scripture? Like, I, I just kept thinking, I know how hard it is for me to prepare like my very capable, very involved grandparents, parents who are grandparents, uh, to keep my kids when Josh and I leave town for like a couple days. Like, I cannot even imagine the task of trying to prepare 12 like very unlikely humans to carry on the mission of God after you are gone, um, I'm like, how does one even do that? But that's exactly what he does in this chapter. And he does it so simply, but he does it so profoundly. Uh, it's amazing to me. I just marvel at how he did that. But I do want to challenge us this morning 
that we don't just want to marvel at what he did. We don't just want to marvel at his care and his concern and his wisdom that's displayed in this passage for his disciples then. Uh, we also have got to see that what he was telling them has not lost an ounce of its value or its relevance for us today, right? Like the call is still the same. And the circumstances are still mostly the same. All of us in this room, we are still being called to follow Jesus and to carry on his mission without him physically among us anymore, like in a body. Same call, same mission, same world, same God. Just different disciples, right? And so the invitation this morning to all of us is to lean in and to let these words of Jesus instruct and strengthen us the same exact way that they were intended to instruct and strengthen uh, his disciples then. Okay, I'm going to take these, this off because can you all hear this? I can. Um, maybe, maybe. Okay, there we go. Try to, you know, wear the earrings, look good, and then here we are. <laughs> All right, y'all ready? Look down at your outline. You see the headings that are going to guide us through three main movements of Jesus in this passage. Three things we see him doing in this illustration. First of all, we see him establishing identities. Okay, he's going to lay a foundation right off the bat, who he is, who we are. Uh, after he establishes the identities, he's going to extend the instructions. So in light of who he is, in light of who we are, what are we supposed to do? What are his disciples supposed to do after he's gone? What are the main things they need to be focused on? What are the main things they need to be concerned about? Jesus will tell them. Uh, finally, after the identities are established, after the instructions are given, Jesus prepares them for the opposition that should be expected as they, as we, follow him in a world that is opposed to him. Okay, so firstly, establishing identities. The first thing Jesus does as he begins this illustration is he simply and clearly establishes who is who in this picture. He does not want there to be any confusion about the roles, about the positions that we occupy. So in this illustration, we've got the vine. Jesus says that he is that vine. We've got the vine dresser or gardener. He says the father is the vine dresser. And then finally, we've got the branches. That's where we fit in. He says that we, his followers then, his followers now, we are the branches. And so the question really is, like, what does all that mean? Like, why this metaphor? What is Jesus getting at? Why this wording? And so let's look at that together and see if we can kind of figure out what he's meaning. So first of all, Jesus says he is the vine. And not just the vine, but what does he say? I am the true vine, right? Okay, so why does he say this? What does he mean? And while it may not be like immediately obvious to us what Jesus meant that he was saying there, was not your mind blown as you were reading the notes, as you were maybe listening to James on Sunday, and you realized that what Jesus meant definitely would have been clear to his disciples. They would have immediately been thinking of all the times in the Old Testament that they, that God's people, were referred to as the vine, right? God had called his people to be a vine, um, a vine that he rescued out of Egypt, that he planted in the promised land, that he called to bring life and to bear fruit and to be a planting of display for all the world 
to see of who God is, but over and over and over again, his people had failed miserably. They had not been the, the vine that God had called them to be. They had not done the things that God had called them to do. The disciples would have known that. And they would have realized the magnitude of what Jesus was doing here in this I am statement when he not only takes the Old Testament name of God and applies it to himself like we've seen him do with all the other six. But this time, in this one, he takes the Old Testament name of God's people also and applies it to himself. When Jesus says that he is the true vine, he is making a statement of substitution. What God's people had failed to be and to do, Jesus had come to be and to do perfectly in their place. To live the life we never could have lived. To die the death that we deserved to die. Jesus came to stand in our place, in your place, in my place. And so we see that in, in calling himself the true vine, he is establishing his identity as their all-sufficient substitute, first and foremost. But that is not all that he is doing in calling himself the true vine, because obviously, taken at face value and watching how he unpacks the rest of the illustration throughout the passage, it's very clear that not only is Jesus saying he's their substitute, but he's also saying he's their source, right? Like, what is a vine other than a source point? Uh, it's the point upon which the branches rely. It's the point from which all the branches receive nutrients and water and all that they need for life. It's the point in which the branches rest. And so we have to assume that in choosing this illustration, in calling himself the vine and his people the branches, that Jesus is clearly wanting to draw a parallel between what a literal vine offers to its branches on a physical level and what Jesus, the true vine, offers his branches on a spiritual level. He's establishing that he's the one and the only source from which all life, all hope, all joy, all growth flows. He is our substitute and he is our source. And we hear this and we're like, that is awesome. I mean, like, what an encouragement. Jesus came to be my substitute, and Jesus came to supply me with all that I need. And it is awesome, and it is an encouragement. But you understand that it is also an affront, right? It is an affront on all of our self-sufficiency, all of mine, and it is an affront on all of our idolatry. An affront on all the ways that we try to be the vine ourselves and on all the ways we look to everything else to be the vine as well. Because if Jesus is the true vine, then what? That assumes there is no other. And so in order for Jesus' disciples then... And for us now to accept his claim as the true vine, we have to be willing to accept our utter inability to be the vine ourselves and the utter insufficiency of anything else to be it either. Our utter, our utter inability and anything else's insufficiency. We have to be willing to admit that we desperately need a substitute. 
And we have to be looking to him as our only source of hope and life and joy. And so I just have to pause and ask us this morning, are we? Am I? Am you? Are you? Are you trusting in Jesus to be the true vine? Or are you looking to yourself or to other things to do what only he can do? To be who only he can be. If Jesus is the true vine, it assumes that there is no other. <coughs> Jesus says he's the true vine. There is no other. And then he says that we, we are the branches. And so while we've established that there's only one true vine, we see Jesus explain as this passage unfolds that there are two, right? Two types of branches, two types of people. There's those that bear fruit, and there are those that do not. The vine dresser cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit, and he cuts back, or he prunes, every branch that does bear fruit. And why does he do that? Because the vine dresser knows that a fruitless branch is what? It's a dead branch, right? And it's dead because there is no internal connection to the vine, right? So obviously it's connected externally on the outside uh, because he says the vine dresser has to cut it off. Like there's an external connection there. But internally there is no connection to a source of life, and so the branch is dead. The lack of fruit is really just the evidence of its deadness, right? It's the outward expression, if you will, of the inward condition. Fruitless branches are internally disconnected branches. Internally disconnected branches are dead branches, and dead branches have to be cut on the flip side, fruitful branches then are internally connected branches. Internally connected branches are living branches, and living branches must be cut back. And so I want to make sure that we see that ultimately it's not actually the fruit that's determining the identity of the branch. So whether it's dead or it's living, it's also not the fruit that's actually determining the destiny of the branch, like whether it's cut off or whether it's cut back. It's actually the inward connection to the vine, right? That's determining that. Whether or not it is depending on and drawing life from the vine. And so, of course, we see what Jesus is doing here, right? Like, he's speaking to a reality that certainly existed in their world then. They are still right now processing Judas and the fact that he is going to betray Jesus, right? So he's speaking to a reality that certainly was existent for them in this moment, but that is still very much uh, a reality that's alive and well for us in our world today. Um, the reality that they're... Like there are two types of branches, there are two types of people. Two types of people who would call themselves followers of Jesus. Two types of people who would call themselves Christians. And honestly, likely two types of people who are sitting in this room this morning. There are those that bear fruit, and there are those that do not. Those that are internally connected to Jesus and those that are not. I think it's fairly safe to say that all of us in this room are externally connected to Jesus. We're sitting in a Bible study on Wednesday morning in February. Like we're all externally connected to Jesus. But what we've heard Jesus warning here 
is that not all who are connected on the outside are connected on the inside. And in the end, it is only the internal connection that counts. It is not the doing of the right things or the saying of the right things or the coming to the Bible studies or the taking all the notes or the coming to church or the serving in all the things. It is only ever our internal life-giving connection to Jesus, reliance on Jesus, submission to Jesus that determines a person's identity, whether we are spiritually dead or alive, and that determines a person's destiny, whether we are cut off or whether we are cut back. It's only the internal connection that determines our salvation. And so again, I just have to pause for a second and ask all of us this morning, are you internally connected to Jesus? Have you submitted and surrendered to him as your Lord? Have you trusted him as your Savior? And does your life have fruit, evidence, to prove it. If you sit here this morning and you know you've got the external, but you know you lack the internal, I beg you to hear the warning of God in this passage. The warning that without an internal connection, you are a dead branch. And ultimately, the destiny of every dead branch is destruction. Verse 6 tells us that after the dead and fruitless branches are taken away and cut off, they're gathered together and thrown into the fire and burned. The ultimate destiny of every dead branch is destruction. It is eternity apart from Jesus. Here, that morning, this morning, ladies, but then also know that this warning, like all warnings, is not intended to shame you. It is intended to save you. It is intended to wake you up to the current reality of your identity and your destiny and invite you to place your hope in Jesus, to connect yourself internally to him by faith and know for certain that he will most assuredly bring your dead heart to life if you do. And immediately, your identity will be transferred to the second kind of follower that this passage refers to, which, of course, is the true followers, the ones who are connected to Jesus in an internal, inward way, a way in which they are depending on and drawing life from him, looking to Jesus for hope and life and salvation. And they have the fruit to prove it. And if that would describe you today, then the good news of this passage is that you can be fully assured that you will never be cut off. Jesus over and over again reiterates that those who place their faith in him can never be snatched from his hand. If you are in Christ, you can be fully assured that you will never be cut off. But let me also tell you the most challenging news of this passage is that you should also be fully prepared to continually be cut to be pruned. Verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, so every branch that is alive and connected, the vine dresser prunes that it may bear more fruit. Because any good gardener knows that the key to a healthy and growing and thriving vine is continual pruning. 
Um, you cannot let them just run wild. You have to continually be working on it, cutting it back, removing dead stuff, shaping it up. Always has to be doing that um, so that the vine or the branch can be all that the gardener knows it can be. The key to an abundantly fruitful vine is continual pruning. But the thing about pruning that we all understand is though it's necessary and it's purposeful, it's also at the exact same time so incredibly painful, isn't it? Pruning is painful. We know it well. But as one commentator writes, nothing is more painful to the branch than pruning and nothing more irresponsible for the vine dresser than avoiding it. Pruning is painful, and we would rather avoid it. But thank goodness we have a God who loves us too much to allow that to happen. We have a God who loves us enough to do the painful work of pruning. We have a God who, as Paul Tripp so poignantly says, who will take us to places we would rather not go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. And honestly, I can't think of a better explanation or truer perspective on pruning than that. Pruning is God loving us enough to take us to places we would rather not go. To strip us and rid us of things we would rather not lose. Be it a job or a title or a relationship or possessions or our plans or on and on and on we could go. God loving us enough to take us to places we'd rather not go, to strip us, to rid us of things we would rather not lose in order to produce in us things we could not have achieved on our own. Things that are ultimately always for our good and for his glory. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're currently in a season like that, in a season of pruning, of being cut back in one way or another, I pray that you hear the hope in this passage. That though the season is painful and hard, you can know for sure that the Father isn't using his knife to kill He's only using it to heal. He's always ultimately wanting to bring life to you and wanting to bring life through you. May we know it in our bones. Jesus says that every true follower can be assured they will never be cut off, but they also need to be prepared that they will continually be cut back. And then he turns to his disciples, who I imagine at this point in the conversation are sitting there wondering, like, what's our identity? What's our destiny? Like, which branch are we? Um, and he turns to them and he reassures them in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. In other words, already you are inwardly connected because you have believed the gospel word that I have spoken to you. You guys are living branches, fruitful followers, true disciples, because you've placed your trust in me. And so from here, Jesus kind of shift, shifts gears. He's established the identities. So now he starts to lay out some instructions. So in light of who he is, in light of who they are, what are they supposed to do? And he gives them two main instructions. He says, abide in me and love one another. So the first addresses the vertical relationship between the branch and the vine, between Jesus and his followers. And then the second addresses the horizontal relationship, right? Like branch to branch, follower to follower. And so let's look quickly at both of these. First of all, Jesus says the main and most important job of the branch is simply to abide in the vine. 
he says that word at least, I don't know, by my count, 11 times in these few short verses, maybe more. That's what I counted. Um, but it's clear that abiding is the main and the most important job of the follower. But what exactly is it? Like, how exactly do we do it? Why exactly does it matter? Let's see if we can find out from this passage. First of all, the what of abiding. I think in simplest terms, we can say that it's the continual process of maintaining the inward connection to Jesus that we already have. So it's staying connected to him. It is remaining in him. Uh, Not just a one-time thing, but a continual thing. Also not a passive thing, but a very active thing. Something actually most of us have to fight for. Uh, So think about it this way. Like in the same way that you have to fight to stay close or connected, if you will, to the shore. Like when you're floating on a raft in the ocean against waves that are constantly trying to pull you out deeper. Um, In that same way, so we have to fight to stay close to Jesus in the midst of a world that is constantly trying to pull us away. To abide is to remain, to stay connected to Jesus, come what may. And certainly the disciples were going to need to remember this in the coming days, in the coming weeks, in the coming years that lay ahead as Jesus would be arrested and tried and killed and go to be with his father. Certainly they would be tempted to run. Certainly they'd be tempted to retreat. Certainly they'd be tempted to disconnect. But Jesus is urging them like he is urging us not to run, not to retreat, not to disconnect, but to remain. Remain. But I don't think we can say that abiding is just remaining. But instead, we remain in order that we might rest in and rely on and receive from him. We remain because, as Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. The relationship between the vine and the branch is supposed to be one. It is one of utter dependence, of utter reliance. Like an unplugged appliance, if we are not continually connected to our life source, we can do nothing. And so the call is to remain and to rely totally and completely on Jesus. Not just for salvation, but for every aspect of our lives. When Jesus calls his followers to abide in him, he is calling us to remain in him, to rest in him, to rely on him and his love and his power and his life to supply us with all that we need for our life and godliness. And isn't there something so comforting about that invitation? Like Jesus says, all we have to do for life and to bear fruit and to have fullness of joy is to abide in him, to rely on him. It is such a comforting invitation. And it is also such a challenging one, isn't it? We are people who do not love to have to rely on anybody for anything, or is that just me? I don't know. Uh, But I want to be independent. I want to be self-sufficient. I desperately want to be able to do everything for myself. I like to think that apart from Jesus, I at least can do like some things, you know, maybe even like most things. But Jesus says, apart from him, I can do nothing. Abiding is remaining in, resting in, relying on Jesus so that we can receive from him all that we need to live a life of meaning and beauty and fruitfulness. 
Okay, so if that's the what, then what's the how? Like, how do we practically do it? And really, the answer is just anything that fosters that connection, right? Like, anything you do that keeps you close to Jesus is the how. Uh, He mentioned some givens in this passage. So remembering his love, reading and obeying his word, spending time talking with him in prayer. These are all givens. And these are all so important. These are the main ways that we abide in Jesus. But obviously there are so many other ways that we can do this too. James talked on Sunday about putting scripture in places where you see it to remind you. He talked about playlists that you play in the background to keep that connection going as you're going about your day. It can look so many different ways. Uh, But ultimately, our, our homework said this and I liked it. The key is cultivating a loving, obedient, intimate relationship with Jesus. So what are you doing? What can you do in your life to help foster that? It'd be really fun to kind of talk in your group about ways that you do this in your current season of life that might be helpful um, to other people in your group. Okay, so that's the what of abiding, the how of the abiding, the abiding, but finally, why? Like, why does Jesus call us to do this? What can we expect from a life spent abiding in Jesus? Two main things this passage promises. One, that we will bear fruit, and two, that we will experience fullness of joy. The result of abiding is not a life of perfection, but it is a life of progression, of growth, of transformation, and production of fruit. It's hearts and minds and wills and lives that are more conformed to the heart and the mind and the will and the life of Jesus. More than we were a year ago, more than we were 10 years ago, a life growing in Christ-likeness, a life growing in fruitfulness, and a life abounding in joy, deep joy, his joy, fullness, he says, of joy. And isn't that really what we all want? Like, isn't that what we're all looking for in all the wrong places? Jesus says the way to get it is abiding, abiding in him. Jesus says, abide in me. And then he says, love one another. So if the main job of the branches in relation to the vine is to abide, the main job of the branches in relation to one another is to love, to love each other the same way that he has loved us, which was how? Sacrificially, right? At the cost of his life, at expense to himself. For the past three years, Jesus has loved these men tenderly, patiently, faithfully, lavishly, graciously, uh, despite their mistakes, despite their mess-ups, despite their not getting it all the time. He has loved them unconditionally. And this is the kind of love that he is now calling them and that he's now calling us to extend to one another. Why? Uh, Because just like abiding in him, their love of one another was going to be essential to the equation of how they were going to make it without him physically present among them. How they were going to continue his mission after he leaves. Of course they needed to be connected to him first and foremost, but they also needed to be connected to each other. And the same is true for us today. Guys, we were never intended to do life following Jesus alone. Never. We were always meant to do it in the context of a loving community. Community just like this one. 
God in his kindness has given us each other that we might be instruments of love to each other, strengthening each other, encouraging each other, looking out for each other, sacrificing and laying down our lives for each other, loving each other despite our mistakes, despite our mess ups, despite our struggles, despite our failures, tenderly, patiently, faithfully, lavishly, graciously. Followers of Jesus must be people who are abiding in him, remaining in him, receiving from him, relying on him for literally everything. And we've got to be people who rather than competing and comparing and criticizing one another are committed to sacrificially loving one another as he has loved us. Why? Because what Jesus tells us in this passage is because the world is going to hate you. The world is going to hate you. Before leaving this illustration, Jesus is very clear with his followers that they and that we can expect that because of our connection to him, the world is going to be opposed to us. The world is going to reject us. The world is going to hate us. Jesus says to them, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, the world will hate you because you're chosen by and you're connected to me. You will be guilty by association. It is easy to forget that while following Jesus is, brings both joy and life, it also brings rejection and suffering and opposition from the world. That's exactly, though, what Jesus is reminding us in this passage, at the end of this passage this morning. Never once did Jesus promise that following him would be easy. Never once. In fact, many, many, many times in Scripture, Jesus promises quite the opposite. He never promised that it would be easy. But right here at the end of this passage, he does promise that we will never walk it alone. He will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come to comfort and strengthen and guide us every step of the way. So as we close the chapter, uh, if you were to keep reading, you would see that Jesus says in the very first words of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then he warns them of a few more hard things that are going to happen. And then he says, verse 4, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And so you hear the purpose of Jesus, right, in everything that we just laid out in this passage. Everything he just said about who he is, who we are, everything he just called us to, abiding in him, loving one another, everything he's prepared us for, rejection, opposition, hatred of the world. All of it is ultimately intended to keep us from falling away, to keep his disciples then and to keep us now from falling away. He has said these things to us today so that when their hour, when the hour of trial, when the hour of testing, when the hour of opposition comes, we can remember that he told them to us and we will not fall away. So take heart, Jesus follower. Remember who he is. Remember who you are. Abide in him. Love one another. Expect opposition. I want to close with this. Um, Beth Moore. I don't know what you think about her, but she did write a book called Chasing Binds that's on this whole passage, and it has some great things in it. But this is how she closes the book, and this is just how I want to close this today, and I love it. Um, she imagines 
heaven when we get to the end, when we haven't fallen away. And this is what she says. I'm fairly certain we won't need taxis in heaven. But if we did, I imagine Jesus might meet you at the gates, throw his arms around you, and then hop into the cab with you for a retrospective tour of your life. The way I picture it, you'll watch everything biography like, seeing the highlights and the lowlights through redeemed eyes. Jesus will point out the window and say, see that rocky patch over there? The rough terrain that tore the soles from your shoes and left your feet black and blue. It was part of making you into the person that you are now. You'll pass by a place you lived for a spell, a place you never would have chosen if it had been up to you. That spot was no accident, he'll say. You were right where you were supposed to be. In fact, that was sacred ground. He'll pull over to a field to let you get a close-up look at the soil. He'll show you how deep your roots went, deeper than you ever would have imagined. And while you're poking around in the dirt, he'll show you how the dead things were actually part of the hummus of your life. Then he'll take you on a series of stops to look back on the most excruciating scenes you endured. The places where you were pruned within an inch of your life. The place where pestilence nearly finished you off. The place that was heaped with more manure than you could throw a pitchfork at. But this time, you won't see the pruning shears, or the blight-eaten leaves, or the dung pile. You'll see only beauty that came from ashes, the joy that sprung out of the morning, the praise that grew out of the soil of despair. Finally, Jesus will show you a field with a basket upon basket of plump, ripe grapes. Where did this harvest come from, you'll wonder. The vine dresser will grin from ear to ear. This is the fruit of your life. You know how I love to make things grow. Then I'll put his arm around you. There was never a moment I wasn't with you. I was singing over you the whole time. And I make everything matter. We can know without a shadow of a doubt that every moment he is with us and he makes everything matter. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I do believe. Would you help my unbelief? It is hard living in the reality of the already but the not yet. And I desperately need you to remind me of who you are and who I am. Um, remind me, remind us of our limitedness as a branch and our desperate need of you. Help us to fight to remain connected to you. Help us to lavishly love one another. Would you teach us how to love sacrificially? And would you strengthen us to endure the opposition? this world. We look forward to the day when we stand with you face to face and abiding as our reality fully and finally. Oh, we love you. Thank you for this time. Amen.